Um, this morning we have Dr. Paul uh, Friesen with us to, to share a message from God's Word with us. They, are, um, they, they lead a ministry in Massachusetts called Home Improvement Ministries, which is uh, a ministry that is involved in, in family ministries. They've, involved, they've been involved in serving family ministries for over 35 years. They've been married over 41 years now. And uh, they, uh, they, it was a, a blessing to be with them Friday night and Saturday morning. And so we're excited that he'll be here to share with us this morning from Mark chapter 2. Uh, just a, a few things. They have three lovely daughters, from what I'm told. I've actually not met them, so I, I threw lovely in there for your benefit. You can affirm or deny uh, as you desire. Um, but, uh, they, and they are Patriot fans, which uh, another reason why I'm very thankful for, for him being here this morning. Uh, very few opportunities do I have to, uh, to share with Pastor Dave and even Pastor Chris now the benefit it is to, to be a fan of the, the New England Patriots. Um, <laughs> I'm just taking whatever time I can to get this in, Dave. Uh, no, but we are, we're very thankful uh, to have uh, Paul share with us this morning from Mark chapter 2. So would you uh, w- uh, join me in welcoming Paul to the pulpit this morning? Thank you, Dan. Uh, we have enjoyed being here very much and appreciate the kind hospitality of Dan and Tara and so great to meet Dave and Barb and uh, just a number of you over the weekend. Uh, Virginia and I are usually traveling together, but she had to fly to uh, California for a funeral, and so she is sorry she's not here, but uh, wants to send her greetings to you. And I do want to offer my condolences to you who are Yankees fans. Uh, I know it was a tough evening. Uh, we in New England, uh, we don't have a chance to lose too often, but uh, we, we do know we lost twice to the Giants, and that was pretty disheartening to us that the referees stole that game from us. But, uh, but we're glad to be here. It's just a joy for us uh, to be with you today. In New, in New England, we root for the Red Sox and anyone who plays the Yankees. So... It's good that we can come together as believers, though, uh, today and, and celebrate. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house with your people. Our desire is today that uh, you would be honored and that we would hear something from you through your word, that through your Holy Spirit you'd say something to each of us, a word of encouragement or challenge, whatever we need to hear, and we're thankful that we can do that, and we come and express our dependence on you for that. In Christ's name, amen. We've been talking about marriage strong this weekend, and this morning we're going to talk about being stronger together. How do we live our lives in a way that are more fulfilling all that God desires for us to live? And the passage we're going to be looking at is familiar to some of us. It comes out of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus' interaction with a paralytic. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and that many were gathered so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came to him, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, the first thing before we really get into the story is just an observation that everywhere Jesus went, people followed. Uh, Jesus drew a crowd everywhere he went. Jesus was intriguing, and people wanted to hear what this teacher had to say. The Scripture calls us to be imitators of Christ, and if we are followers of Christ, our lives should be intriguing. But so often, when people hear the word Christian, they think irritating, not intriguing. But there should be something in the way we live our lives that people say, I want to hear more about that message. I want to hear why you live the way you do. I did a wedding for a family that if I mentioned their name, you would all know the name. It's nationally known. And when I do weddings, I especially enjoy doing weddings where those in the audience are those who are not churched or have not followed Christ. That was the case in this wedding. And after the wedding was over, the uncle of the groom came up to me and he said, Pastor, I have never heard anybody say anything like you just said. I have never heard anybody talk about marriage like you talked about it. I personally have been married six times, and I've never heard this before. <laughs> He's now been married seven, but it was six a couple of years ago. I, uh, we worked with the Patriots, and when Wes Walker was with us, I officiated at Anna and Wes's wedding, and and it was just sort of a who's who that were there, a lot of NFL people and Hollywood people. And, and after it was over, a man rushed me, and he was a writer in Hollywood, which I don't remember his name, but you would know his name. He wrote for Glee or something. And, and he said, that was good. That was really good. Where do you get your material? <laughs> Do we, we forget. This is good news. Some of us who have been raised in the church, oh, it's restrictive news, or it's this. Or, uh, no, it's good news. This is free news. I have a friend who's a pastor of a church in California, and their motto is, it's a church for people who don't like church. And so it's really uh, just a, very friendly to those that are exploring their faith. And they have a table that says, I raised my hand. And that's where you go if you said, I'd like to follow Christ, or I'd like to learn more about faith, and, and then give them a Bible. And so this man raised his hand, he came to the table, and read the, got a Bible. He came back the next week, and he came to Ray, the pastor, and he said, Pastor, he said, I, I read the book, I read the book. That was really good. Has he written anything else? This is good news, and this is our privilege of sharing the good news. 
Today, as we look at this story, we want to talk about this good news and the transforming power it has in our life. We're going to talk about four points. We're going to talk about what it is that might hinder us from fully living, uh, where are we going to go for help so that we can live more fully, and who is going to be involved in that process of helping us, and then if we're helped, are people going to be amazed when they see who we are? So first, what might hinder us from fully living? The story today is about somebody who had physical paralysis, and uh, some of us may have that in some form or another, or certainly know people who are physically paralyzed. But I want us to think today about what might be the areas that paralyze us spiritually or relationally, areas that hinder us from fully living. And if we think about this, probably you can each come up with something that affects you. Maybe you're here as a single today, and you say, I just feel paralyzed by my singleness. I always thought I'd be married, or maybe you're, you were married, you're now divorced, and you're going, I'm just, I'm angry, or I'm paralyzed about this, and I'm perplexed about this, and it's just stopping me from fully living. Or maybe you're a married couple, and you're going, if we're honest, our marriage is paralyzed. I, I just feel like it's not going anywhere. We're not living. It's not what I ever expected marriage to be. Or if you're in a family unit, you may say, our family uh, doesn't have the closeness I thought. I, there's some issues that they just keep coming up, and it just seems to paralyze us. Many times in our lives, in our individual lives, the areas that paralyze us are areas of sin. Uh, it's a, an area that just seems to keep repeating itself. We just can't seem to beat it. And we say, if I could just deal with this area, I think I would live more fully. So I want you each to think about that. Just think personally about what is it that might be an area of sin in your own life, a besetting sin that is paralyzing you from living fully. So just think about that for a second. Uh, sir, sir, what's your name? Skip. Skip, okay. Now, I just thought it would be helpful uh, for us to understand paralysis. Skip, would you tell us the sin that's sort of paralyzing you? And, and we'll, just, we'll just go down the row, everybody, and, we, we'll, and I don't want you to talk long. Just give a word, like anger, pornography, alcohol, whatever it is. It's whole, oh, we don't have time for that, so we won't do that. Okay, but Skip broke out in a sweat when I... Uh, why is that? Because we each know the areas that are really paralyzing us. And so sometimes we can get discouraged like that. Is there ever going to be any hope for us? Uh, this morning, we're not going to focus on all of those. Uh, it could be it's an area of anger. It could be bitterness in your life. It could be pride. It could be abuse of uh, substances or alcohol. Uh, it could be relationships that are unhealthy. Though, many of those things. But we're going to talk about two th areas that I believe are pretty universal for us. Uh, the first one is selfishness. And the second one is uh, how we deal with authority and how we use authority in our life. 
Uh, first, selfishness. Selfishness is pretty universal, is it not? Uh, selfishness is that which is just in us. We're selfish from the time we're young. I never remember our girls. We have three girls, and when they were young, I never remember once one of them saying to the other, here, you take the new doll. I'd like to play with the broken one that only has one arm. There, no, I want the new one. That's mine. And there's something in us that just is selfish from the time we're born. Some of you know the name Bill Walton, who was a, a UCLA basketball star and when John Wooden was the coach. In Bill Walton's junior year, they had won the championship, national championship. They actually were on a 70-game string of not losing a game. Bill Walton was the MVP. Everybody thought he was the best. And during the summer of his junior year, before he became a senior, uh, Bill let his hair grow long and had facial hair. And he came to practice, the first practice of his senior year. John Wooden had a policy that none of his players would have facial hair, nor would they have any hair that was longer than two inches long. So Coach Wooden went up to Bill Walton and said, uh, Bill, you know the policy, uh, no facial hair, no long hair. Walton said to the coach, you can't make me cut my hair. You don't have the authority to tell me whether I can have facial hair. And Coach Wooden just said, that's right, Bill, I don't. I just have the authority to say whether you're going to be on the team this year or not. And you have 15 minutes to get your hair cut and shave and get back to practice, or you will be off the team. Walton tells a story. He ran out, got on his bike, went to the closest barber shop, threw himself in the chair and said, cut everything off. <laughs> and he was back in. Well, whether you're the the child or whether you're the adult, there's something about authority that we chafe about. There's something about authority. We don't want anybody in authority over us. In the end, we chafe most probably, if we're honest, that God's going to tell us what to do and that he has authority. His word is authority. Uh, and his word is great, but we, most of us, if we're honest, we don't believe all of it or don't follow it. We just, it's a good book. But it'd be better if some of the parts weren't in it. I won't do it this morning, but I have done it before. I, I've said, you know, like that tithing part. Ah, that's a little tough. Give 10% as a minimum to the church, to God's work. Man, that hinders my vacations and boat I wanted to buy. I think the Bible would be better if that weren't in it. And what I do, what I've done is I've taken scissors and cut that out. And just like your face, ma'am, <laughs> I had a, a 65-year-old pastor's wife that just about fainted when I did it. And then I said, and that part about sexual purity for teens, I'm for all of us, but who's going to do that? And I cut that out. I said, then that thing about submission, <laughs> rip the whole page. Let's get rid of that. And then I said, listen, I love God's word, and I would not defame God's word. That was a translation that was not worth keeping anyway. But, um, <laughs> but I said, the thing that intrigues me is some of you are more upset that I physically cut a piece of paper 
than that I disregard God's authority in my life. It's so easy for us to just chafe against anybody telling us this is how you're to live. Uh, for those of you that are children here, uh, the Bible has authority there. We're all under authority. Everybody is under authority someplace. But it says children in Ephesians uh, 6, 1. Uh, excuse me, I'm not on authority. I'm going to get back to that. Boy, I jumped that, didn't I? That was terrible. I'm talking about authority. Let's finish authority. Uh, children are told in Ephesians 6, 1 to obey their parents. Period. <laughs> uh, now, what about if you're smarter than your parents? Do you have to obey your parents? I love this story when Jesus was in um, Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. It says that he didn't get part in the caravan, didn't tell his parents, and he stayed back in Jerusalem. Now, if any of your children were Billy Graham crusade and the church went on a number of buses and your 12-year-old didn't get on the bus and you found out when you got back, would you be upset? Absolutely. And his parents were too. Now, Jesus never sinned, so it can't be sin, but it was childish irresponsibility. Jesus should have told his parents. That wasn't very considerate of him. But the intriguing thing about that story is after they came back and found him, it says, and he returned to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Why? Because God has set this thing that parents are in authority over children. Ephesians 6, 4 says that we are not to use authority in a way that is discouraging to our children. Do not exasperate your children. It's very easy for those of us in positions of authority to use our authority in ways that are harmful rather than helpful. Our words have a lot of weight to them, do they not? Some of you are sitting here today, remember a word that your parents said to you 30, 40 years ago. They said, you'll never amount to anything, you're this, you're that, and it still rings. Some of you have lived your life trying to disprove your parents. Some of your parents are dead, and you're still trying to disprove them to show that you're not who they said you were. I told the story yesterday, but when I was in fourth grade, uh, my fourth grade teacher named Mrs. Humble wrote on the back of my report card, Paul is a very nice boy. He's just slow. I knew she wasn't talking about my athletic ability. What she was saying is Paul's dumb. And for 30 years, that defined me until I got tricked into taking an IQ test when I was 42 years old. And the person who took it came to me and said, you're very intelligent. You've just got a huge learning disability. And all of a sudden, 30 years of life made sense to me. But Mrs. Humble, who I didn't even like, <laughs> defined me for 30 years. She's a person of authority. We're people of authority, especially those of us who are parents with children. Our words say a lot. They mean a lot to them. If Virginia were here today, she'd tell the story of a time that our middle daughter, Lisa, who is just our most compliant child, was cleaning the bathroom when she was probably about 12 years old. And... and Virginia went in and thanked her and then noticed that the, the faucet had spots on it. It hadn't been wiped clean, toothpaste around. And, and she said, Lisa, thanks for cleaning the room. You know, uh, next time when you do it, and she turned to see Lisa with tears welling up. 
And she said, oh, I, I'm sorry, Lisa. I, I mean, you did a great job. I just want to help you do it better next time. And Lisa said, I know, Mama, but I just never can get it right. I'm never good enough for you. Now, there's nothing wrong with instructing our children how to improve, but when, when what we do is we just tag that on, they, they, we hear that. All we hear is, I'm a failure. I can't do it right. What a great responsibility we have to be people who use authority in ways that honor God and are helpful to our children. Let's talk a little bit about the whole area of selfishness. Selfishness is universal. As I said, our children are selfish from very young age. And and how do we break selfishness? It, it, we live in a culture that says, have it your way, you deserve a break today. It just goes on and on and on. One of the things as we deal with couples when they come in for marriage counseling is they'll say, don't I have a right to be happy? Don't I have a right to be happy? Isn't that guaranteed in, in, in our Constitution? We want to be happy. It becomes a selfish thing that's, that's driving us. I love the story about Kevin, who's age five, and Ryan, his three-year-old brother. Mom was making pancakes for him one morning, and they were arguing over who would get the first pancake. And, and the mom decided to make this a time of teaching, so she said, if Jesus were here, he'd say to his brother, you have the first pancake. Kevin, age five, decided to turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, why don't you be Jesus? <laughs> Isn't that like us? Why don't, you be, why don't you be the one serving? But Mark 10, 45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. One of the great privileges we have as followers of Christ are to be servants. But that selfishness is just sort of part of us. How do we get away from that? I think one of the greatest antidotes to selfishness is service, is serving. When our girls were 12, 14, and 16, we took our first mission trip to Haiti, which is sort of an advanced trip right off the bat. At that time, it was one of the fourth... Uh, poorest countries in the world. And when we were flying to Haiti, we flew through Miami. And Julie, our 12-year-old at that time, saw all the posters from Disney World. And she said, Daddy, do you think next year, instead of going to Haiti, we could go to Disney World? And I said, the parental will see, which means dream on, sweetheart. But um, (laughs) eight days later, We came through that same airport where there were the same posters, and Julie said, Daddy, do you think at Christmas, instead of having Christmas, we could go to Haiti? What had happened in eight days, in that time of serving, God had transformed her heart. If our, when our girls wrote their essays into getting into college, what is the event that's changed you the most? All of them wrote about going to Haiti. Uh, and we can do that. We need to model that as parents, the goodness of serving. If you're fixing a meal for somebody, don't complain all day. I can't believe we have to take the meal to this person. Don't they know their restaurants? 
Oh, oh, how exciting. We can serve somebody. We, we need to do that. We need to make sure. Uh, there's no charge for this. It's not a parenting deal. But I just encourage you, if parents don't have punishment for your children, be serving. If your child's disobedient, don't say, so you have to do the dishes or you have to mow the lawn. What you're saying is serving is punishment. No, serving is a privilege. Take away a privilege. But why make work punishment? Uh, serving is something God's given us. No charge for that. Okay, now we move on. So we, we need to be those people who are serving. Uh, those people that, if you've been, how many of you have been on mission trips? Yeah, when you got back from the mission trip, you say, oh, that was horrible. I hated serving those people. No. I, I bet you were filled with joy. You said, this was so great. And that's what the four people did, the four friends, I think. They, they brought their friend to Jesus. They, they served him. And I think there must have been great joy in that. Now, as they brought him there, it, it cost them a lot. I don't know what they had to do that day, but, but they, they, they gave up things so they could go and bring him to Jesus. So whatever our besetting area is in our life, selfishness, authority, or some other area that's paralyzing us, you may say, well, that's sort of a downer. Is there any hope in that? Yes, there's hope because we see in this passage what the four friends did, and they brought their friend to Jesus. So the second point is, where are we going for help? Uh, not only what is hindering us, but then who is going to help us in this? Well, the four friends, for some reason, took their friend to Jesus. I'm sure there had been other people that had come through Capernaum and uh, other healers. But for some reason, there was something maybe they heard about Jesus. And so they took the person to Jesus. And they went to a lot of effort to take him to Jesus. Took him across town. We think, uh, got there, it was crowded. They couldn't get in. Many of us say, well, I tried. But no, they kept going. They got up on the roof. They actually dug a hole in the, the roof, the, the clay straw roof, and they lowered their friend. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was the one who could bring healing. So the second question is, where do we go for help? Who, who do we believe is able to help us? Uh, do we believe that Jesus is the one who can actually bring healing to our life? Are we bold about telling people? Are we, are we seeking Jesus in our own life? I love Costco. I think Costco is the best store there is. There's no better store than Costco. And we can talk afterwards if you'd like. Maybe you're a Sam's friend, you know, or BJ's, or, but, but you're wrong. I don't mind telling you you're wrong. Uh, when our children were with us, I would take them to Costco around noon, and we'd, I'd feed them on samples. Uh, <laughs> you go around twice, and you can pretty much satisfy a young child. And if they're not, you give them, you get a hot dog for $1.50. You get a whole meal, hot dog and a drink, $1.50. Gives you the fat you need for the whole day. So you don't have to worry the rest of the day. Where am I going to get the rest of my fat allocation for today? Oh, I got it already. One meal. Boom. Done. It's great. I'm not intimidated by you. I'll, I'll tell you, Costco's the best. But 
I'm a little ashamed to say that sometimes I'm less bold about telling people about Jesus. I don't know. I don't want to offend them. I don't want them to think that they're wrong. I don't want... Now, Scripture says that we are to give a reason for the hope that is within us in 1 Peter. Just give a reason for the hope. I don't have to tell you what's wrong with Costco. All I have to say is what's wrong with BJ's. All I have to say is Costco's good. But in your heart, regard Jesus the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. I love Costco. Jesus is better than Costco. Jesus is the one who actually can bring healing. Now, in this story, the paralytic is lowered down. And sometimes when we read Scripture, I think we forget that these are real people, real situations, real life. It wasn't made up. And I don't know about you, but if I were the paralytic, I've never walked. My friends take me to Jesus so that I'll walk. I get lowered down, and Jesus looks at me and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. I think we're going to go, oh, great. <laughs> Have you ever had your last 75 cents and you really wanted a Snickers bar and you're at a vending machine? And so you put in your three quarters and then you hit D3. And all of a sudden, the lifesavers start churning. <laughs> Don't you hate that? Well, that's what the paralytic felt. I came because I couldn't walk, and now you're just going to forgive my sins. Now I'm going to be a saved paralytic. You see, what Jesus knew that day was that the paralytic's greatest need was to be healed from his sins, to be forgiven, even greater than that he could walk. Many of us come to Jesus so that we'll have a better job. If I come to Jesus, he'll help me find a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or we'll have children or we won't have as many children, whatever. It just, I can come to Jesus. He's going to do this. And Jesus isn't not concerned about that, but he says, you know, your greatest need is your relationship with me. And so he, he desires first to heal us. Now, in this story and often in our own life, when we come to Christ, there's a transforming work that happens that other areas of our life improve as well. But so often the motivation we have is really that Jesus will make us better. Maybe if I, read my, if I would have read my Bible yesterday, the Yankees would have won. Maybe Jesus would have blessed if. No, that's not the way Jesus works. We, our greatest need is relationship with him. Christ says that himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's a very narrow view, and today we're supposed to be tolerant of everything, right? There are lots of ways to God. Everybody, just find God. But Jesus is very, very specific here. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. There's no salvation through anyone else. Now, there's nobody who was more interactive and uh, connecting with those who didn't believe like he believed than Jesus. You don't find him, you know, condemning those who are questioning or anything like that. But he also doesn't waver that I am the way, the truth, the light. Virginia and I fly through Newark probably once every two weeks on our route somewhere. 
I like the pilots that land on the runway. Not the ones that say, there are lots of areas of cement in New York to land on. There's Route 90, Highway 95, New Jersey Turnpike. No, I want them to land. I want them to be very narrow in, in where they land. Uh, Jesus is saying, I am the way. I'm the one who can bring healing into your life. So first, what might hinder you? Second, where are you going to go for help? And third, who are you going to involve in this process of helping you? The four friends were critical in helping bringing their friend to Jesus. So the question here is, who are your friends and where are they taking you? Uh, anybody dating somebody? You're not married, but you're dating. You have a boyfriend or girlfriend. You're willing to say it? Mm. Boy, this is your day, huh? Uh, what's your name? Nina. Nina. And Nina, you're dating Skip. I just wanted to compliment you because, you know, I got you on the first one. So, Nina, you're dating somebody. Yeah, he's not with you. Okay. What's his name? Paul. Paul. It's a good name. Good name. So, Nina, here's a question for you, and you don't have to answer. But is Paul drawing you closer to Jesus? If no, dump him. Okay. He might be handsome, might have a good job, might be funny. But if he's not, when you're together, if you're not growing close to Jesus, dump him, okay? I have a book for you afterwards, just thank you for this. <laughs> See, we need to be helping each other grow closer to Jesus, right? So uh, you can do this. Who are your best friends? Where are they taking you? The people you're hanging out with, are they taking you to Jesus, taking you away from Jesus? Uh, and this doesn't mean that we can't have friends that aren't following Christ. It just means we're either encouraging them towards him, we're taking them to Jesus, or they're taking us to Jesus. But don't hang out with people that are taking you away from Jesus and have them be your primary friends. Is that clear? Our youngest daughter uh, met her now husband when she was in Uganda. And she wrote us at one point, she said, when I'm with Derek, I fall deeper in love with Jesus. That's all a dad wants to hear didn't hurt that he was the executive director of a neurological pediatric hospital. But it was, it, the, the, the main thing was that he loved Jesus, and when they are together, they grew in their relationship with Christ. Who are your friends, and where are they taking you? Do you have friends that are not human friends? I don't mean like an imaginary friend. I mean, like, what you, the movie you watched last night. Did it take you closer to Jesus or take you away from Jesus? Uh, the magazine you read yesterday, did it take you to Jesus or away from Jesus? Social media that you're involved with, is it taking you to Jesus or taking you away from Jesus? Um, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but here we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm itinerant, so I just pass through. I'll probably never be back again. Uh, so, alcohol. What's alcohol? Is alcohol leading you closer to Jesus or taking you away from Jesus? Some of us are getting drunk, and is that helping you close to Jesus? No. Well, I don't get drunk. I just get buzzed. 
do you grow closer to Jesus when you get buzzed? Do you honor him more fully? Is that a... Whatever it is, if you just ask these two questions for this week, who are my friends and where are they taking me? What are my activities and where are they taking me? Every time we think, should I read this book or not? Does it take me to Jesus, take me away from Jesus? Here's this friend I should hang out. They take me to Jesus, take me away from Jesus. It would make a huge difference in our life because what it's saying is, I really do want to be closer to Jesus. I want to follow him more fully. I want to find the healing that is found in him. There's a Chinese proverb that says, if you don't change the direction in which you're headed, you'll end up there. (laughs) Do you like the direction you're headed? Uh, Do you like the life you're living? Uh, If not, consider coming to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to heal me in this area. I want to change the trajectory of my life. Lastly, when others see your health, will they be amazed? Verse 12 says, and he, paralytic, rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. People were amazed at what God had done in the life of this young man. When people see us, will they be amazed at what's happened? A number of years ago, Virginia and I were asked to speak in Hawaii, and we just said, here I am, Lord, send me. Uh, uh, and we, you know, we didn't want to go, but it's ministry. So um, we went a week early so we could just get adjusted to the culture and understand, and, and we stayed a week late so that we could sort of process with them, you know, at time. But while we were there, one of the fun things we did is we swam in this lagoon, and there are about 100 turtles there. We love turtles, and we are swimming with turtles, and we have pictures of each other swimming with the turtles. And when we, we showed our friends that, you know what they said? Tell me, where is that? I want to go there. I want to experience that. And that's what is happening here. They, somebody said, I am amazed. What happened to you? And when our lives are affected by Christ, when we are healed, when we start living more fully, people are going to say, what happened to you? I want to, I want to experience that myself. They're amazed at what had happened. This is whether you're married. Say you're married, and, and you've been married for over two weeks, and you still seem happy. Uh, people, people won't say, hey, what's going on? You seem happy, and you're married. It gives you a reason to talk to them. You have a family. You enjoy going vacations. People say, so your whole family went together? How did you make your kids go with you? Virginia wrote a book called Raising a Trailblazer, and it it talks about rite of passages for our kids, and it talks about the birthdays of 13, 16, 18, 21, celebrating them with life values. And at 13, the value of purity. At, at 13, at 16, of affirmation, who are your friends? At 18, uh, truth and grace. Are you a person of truth, but also of grace as you go out to the world? And then at 21, what's your life purpose? Why are you living life? And she has taken all three of our girls to Europe to hike for a week or so um, when they turn 21. We we're in the Mount Washington Hotel, which is in New Hampshire, which is a, a beautiful four or five star resort there. And um, the church that we are part of uh, 
said if we would leave, they would send us there. So they, they gave us uh, this as a gift for leaving the church. And so we were there, and in the hallway, Virginia struck up a conversation with a woman, and they, somehow they saw that Lisa was there, and they talked about Europe, and the woman said, well, what'd you do to make your daughter go with you? And she said, excuse me? She said, well, what'd you do that, that forced your daughter to go with you? And Virginia said, oh, she wanted to go. And, and she said, oh, that's amazing. She said, um, I asked my daughter if she'd spend the weekend here with me at this resort. And she said, no, I don't want to be with you. How does your daughter do that? What do you do? And all of a sudden, it just opened up a time to talk about the hope. Talk, it wasn't condemning her, so you must have done something wrong. It's just, hey, we're just, we, we try to do stuff. We did, blah, blah, blah. And we're in a conversation. See, when people see us, are they amazed that they say, that's what I want? I've told I need to speak just a little longer this morning because uh, Pastor Dan, Pastor Dave were upset that I early ended early in the last service, so they think that might set a pattern that you think pastors actually can preach <laughs> shorter sermon. <laughs> so I'll close with one other story, and this will be a repeat for those of you that are, were there yesterday, but our daughter and Julie and her husband, Derek, uh, lived for four years in Uganda after they got married at this pediatric neurological hospital uh, run by Cure International, which is an incredible uh, medical mission uh, ministry. In, in Uganda, they do primarily, they do surgeries, hydrocephalus. And so those children that have big heads, uh, they do surgery on them. And it's, it's quite an epidemic there uh, because of they actually, the way it happens more in, in undeveloped countries, in Africa at least, they, the witch doctors tell the moms after they've given birth to seal the umbilical cord with cow manure. And so it's not before birth, it's after birth. And so the bacteria from the cow manure goes up and into the brain and causes hydrocephalus, which will kill the child unless they have surgery. So they come to the hospital, and in the U.S. Uh, to this day and around the world, Hydrocephalus is cured, if you will, or dealt with by putting a shunt in, and you drain this. But a U.S. doctor went to Mbali, Uganda, founded the hospital, and developed a procedure uh, called the ETV procedure where you do uh, one surgery, cauterize, and it's done for life. The child is healed. And they do six or so surgeries a day, save hundreds of babies from death. Uh, it's now a teaching hospital and people from the U.S. are so arrogant. Doctors, oh, well, it's, I'm not going to go to Uganda to learn something. And yet, this procedure is now being, they're teaching people from all over the world how to do this surgery so they can save babies without shunts. Well, while the child is there, the mamas are part of a program. They learn some crafts and things that they can make and sell. But they also are told about Jesus every day. And the mom of a particular son uh, came to know Christ while she was at the hospital waiting for her son to have surgery. The, the success rate is phenomenal. But in this unfortunate situation, the boy had come so diseased that there was no hope. And he actually died in surgery. Uh, the mama put him in a suitcase, got on a bus, and went back to her village. Uh, 
And if you know anything about tribal custom, uh, from the husband's standpoint, my son was alive. You took him to that place. They killed him. And so I need to avenge his death. Two weeks later, there's a knock on the door, uh, the compound gate. And the man identified himself, and the guards were scared because they knew what this meant. Finally, he said, two weeks ago, my wife brought my son here. And whatever you did for my wife, I want you to do that for me. What had happened? His wife had been transformed by the power of Christ. He'd gone back and was a different wife. And in two weeks, the husband said, whatever it is, that's what I want. See, that's what this is talking about. It's talking about when Christ gets a hold of our life, there should be a change. Somebody shouldn't say, you're a Christian? I never knew that. It should be, why do you live life that way? You seem, you seem to be living life to the full. You know, often as Christians, we're labeled as those that are dull and no fun and we're boring. But that should be the furthest thing from the truth. Christ came in John 10.10 and says, A thief, that Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it, oh, not boringly, not to the full. Like somebody said, if you've got the joy of the Lord in your heart, would you mind notifying your face? (laughs) Sometimes Christians are just, everything is so hard. It doesn't mean we're laughing all the time, but there should be a vitality in us because we know the King of kings and Lord of lords. If I preach long enough, are we okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have come, that we might have life, that we might have life abundantly. Thank you for this story. Uh, Father, each of us can relate an area in our life where there are choices we've made that we're really not living the way we should or the way that you designed it. We're not living life fully. And we thank you that because of the death and resurrection of your son, that we are able to have a relationship with you. Our sins are able to be forgiven, and we're able to live fully again. We pray that that would be the case, and that as we live our lives for you, that we would have the incredible privilege of having people amazed and ask about what it is that has helped us live the way we do, and we can point them to you. Thank you, Father, for this fellowship. I pray your blessing on this congregation, each person here, and pray that you will help them to continue to delight in you and to delight in each other. In Christ's name, amen. Well, since he left me some extra time, I guess I could preach for a little little more time to fill in the gap. Uh, No, we're going to continue to worship.